The following Rarecast podcast is made possible through support from the Global Genes Corporate Alliance. The members of the Corporate Alliance support Global Genes' mission and programs, work to meet the vital needs of people with rare diseases, and address inequities they face. To learn more about the Corporate Alliance or how your organization can become a member, join us at globalgenes.org and choose Corporate Alliance under the About tab. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Because of the rarity of childhood cancers, Biopharmaceutical companies often don't pursue therapies to treat these conditions. The problem is that precision therapies developed to treat adult patients often don't easily translate into treatments for pediatric patients. Day One Biopharmaceuticals is developing targeted therapies to address childhood cancers and then seeks to partner with larger pharmaceutical companies who may be interested in developing them for adult indications. We spoke to Samuel Blackman, head of research and development for Day One Biopharmaceuticals, about childhood cancers, the need for precision therapies, and Day One's business model that makes targeting childhood cancers a priority. Sam, thanks for joining us. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about childhood cancers, the challenges of developing therapies for these conditions, and day one biopharmaceuticals efforts to bring new therapies to treat these conditions to market. Let's start with the landscape. How large a problem are childhood cancers and why has this patient population generally not benefited from the advances we've seen in therapeutic development more broadly? So, you know, uh, from a, I'm going to answer the question in a couple of ways. It's a really good question. Uh, from a pure numbers perspective, um, fortunately, and I think we're all grateful for this, childhood cancer is not a large problem relative to uh, the number of patients diagnosed each year with lung cancer or prostate cancer or breast cancer. In fact, across all different cancer types that affect children, only about 16,000 children per year are diagnosed with a new cancer here in the United States. But, and I say this as a pediatric oncologist, um, uh, for every single one of those 16,000 children, a diagnosis of cancer is life-altering, not just for the child uh, and not just for their family, but cancer really is a disease of communities. And you can imagine um, uh, you know, a serious diagnosis not only affecting uh, a child and his family, uh, siblings or grandparents or parents, but classmates and teachers and friends. Um, In addition, uh, we treat children with the intent to cure, which means we treat them very intensively because our hope is that they're going to live long lives. But the cost of that intensive treatment is oftentimes a lot of short-term toxicity and lifelong toxicities. And so the problem of childhood cancer at the individual level is enormous. Um, And even though 70% of patients do survive their disease, they do so oftentimes with very significant late effects. Now, 
the second part of the question, which is why have pediatric uh, cancer patients not in general benefited uh, from the same uh, type of advances that we've seen in therapeutic development more broadly? There's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, at the end of the day, um, most new cancer drug targets are selected um, by large pharmaceutical companies to serve the needs of the larger adult markets because drug development is a very expensive, very time-consuming, and very risky endeavor. And by that, I mean, you know, nine out of 10 cancer drugs that enter clinical development never make it through to approval. And so it's really incumbent upon these companies uh, to develop drugs for larger indications that are going to be able to provide the return on the investment of, of, of doing all of that research and development, development work. You know, the other issue is that, you know, childhood cancers and the, 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 the molecular drivers of childhood cancers are not always identical between adult and pediatric patients. So a drug that is developed for breast cancer may be against a target that is not relevant to any known pediatric cancer. Um, and unfortunately, because of the small numbers of patients, there's not a lot of economic incentive in the way that, you know, we, we finance drug development in this country um, to do drug development for very small or rare diseases. There may be listeners who wonder why you can't just adjust an adult cancer drug to treat a pediatric patient, but, but it's not that simple. Why can't we take medicines developed for adults and just use them in pediatric populations? Are pediatric cancers different than adult cancers? Are there other concerns? So, you know, actually, uh, we do and have been for a long time uh, treating uh, pediatric cancers with adult cancer drugs uh, and scaling uh, the, the, the schedules uh, and doses of those drugs accordingly. Um, but that has more to do with the fact that for a very long time, the only thing that we had for the treatment of any cancer, pediatric or adult, um, was chemotherapy, which is less specific in its targeting. Chemotherapies often target the uh, mechanisms that drive cell division, independent of whether it's a breast cancer or a brain cancer. And so for the past 70 years, we've been taking adult chemotherapy drugs and figuring out how to use them for pediatric cancer patients. Over the last 20 years, as we've developed novel targeted therapies that really address the genetic defects that drive specific cancers and novel immunotherapies that reactivate the immune system, it turns out that your point is correct. Um, medicines developed for those adult cancers oftentimes won't work in pediatric cancers because the underlying biology is different. For example, uh, the whole class of what are called PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors, these immune reactivating agents that wake up the immune system so that the immune system destroys the cancer, work very, very well in specific adult cancers like melanoma and lung cancer, but they, they work in almost no pediatric cancers. And a lot of that has to do with the fundamental biological differences between adult and pediatric cancers. The other thing that, you know, of course, you always have to be thoughtful of is some of the medicines that we use for adults have toxicities or side effects. And when you treat children with the intent for them to survive, some of those side effects could be uh, lifelong in children. Um, that is less of a concern uh, uh, 
from my perspective, the bigger challenges are really the biological differences between adults and pediatric cancers. There, there is, however, um, some overlap, and I think in that space there, where there is overlap, that is really where a lot of progress can be made. There's long been a recognition of the inequity in the development of cancer therapies for pediatric patients. Uh, almost 20 years ago, the Pediatric Research Equity Act gave the FDA the authority to require drug companies to conduct pediatric studies for certain medicines. What effect has that had? Um, for the most, uh, for most of those 20 years, almost none in the field of oncology, because there has been this notable loophole in the Pediatric Research Equity Act or PREA. And that loophole is as follows. If the disease that that drug is being developed for is an orphan disease, and orphan diseases in this country are defined as having uh, an incidence of less than 200,000 new cases per year, then the requirements under PREA didn't apply. And as I told you just a few minutes ago, if you add up all of the pediatric cancer diagnoses per year in the United States, it's only 16,000 patients per year. So not only is any given pediatric cancer an ultra or ultra orphan disease, but all of pediatric cancer in the aggregate is an orphan disease. And so PREA didn't apply. More recently with the Race for Children Act, uh, which was introduced a few years ago, that loophole has been closed and there has been more work done with uh, the FDA now requiring pediatric study plans for drugs being developed um, that target certain targets that are relevant to pediatric cancer. But the, but the um, uh, uh, yield from that work really has yet to be fully realized since that legislation has only, has only been in effect for a few years. Is the fact that more pharmaceutical companies aren't pursuing these indications simply a matter of economics, or are there other issues? I think economics is is one and probably a majority of the uh, the, the one and 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 maybe the most important or or biggest reason why drug companies either don't pursue uh, pediatric indications or don't pursue them until far later in the drug development process. I think that there are other reasons, some of which are probably real and some of which are, are, are maybe a little bit more um, apocryphal sort of uh, beliefs within the, the, the drug development community. What do I mean by that? Um, I think that, that there um, is a belief and it's mistaken that it's hard to conduct studies in pediatric cancer patients. Um, and that may have been the case 20 years ago, but uh, over the past 20 years, many pediatric oncology uh, centers now uh, know how to run industry-sponsored drug development trials and, and have the infrastructure to do that. Um, I think there was a, also a belief that, or a fear that you know, if you had a serious toxicity in a pediatric patient on a pediatric trial that somehow that could put the entire adult drug development program at risk. And so nobody wanted to take the risk of a child suffering a bad side effect that would then blow up their, you know, you know, multi-million or, or, or hundred or million dollar investment in a, in, in a drug for lung cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer. Again, I've heard those fears, but I've never actually seen an adult cancer drug development program torpedoed by a pediatric uh, adverse event. Um, I think the other big thing is that 
the work that needs to be done to develop um, pediatric indications is, is as, as expensive as, as doing the work to develop a drug for adult indications. But the, the, the yield on that work in terms of you know, the return on investment um, is smaller. And in the eyes of a big pharmaceutical company, they need to maximize their um, return on, on, on their investment in a drug development program. And so if you think of a drug and maybe it's going to play a role in liver cancer, maybe it's going to play a role in gastric cancer, maybe it's going to play a role in melanoma. And there are tens of thousands or you know, 100,000 patients in the aggregate who, who that drug would serve. That's where you're going to focus your team and your team's resources and your clinical trial investment. And if that drug could be used for, I'll pick a like alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, two, 300 patients a year, um, you're not going to put a full team on that because at the end of the day, that's not an efficient way for you to use the resources that you have to try to, to, try to get that drug to patients. Um, the problem is if everybody takes that perspective, then who's going to make new medicines for, for kids with alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma or Ewing sarcoma? Um, and that's a problem that we've been facing in the drug development ecosystem for many, many years. And, and it explains why there's such a yawning gap in the approval of new therapies for pediatric cancer patients. I, I want to talk about what day one is doing, but perhaps you can start just by explaining the name. So uh, it's a great question. So when uh, I was starting the company back in, in 2018, and we had gotten some seed funding to, to try and build it, we had to incorporate. And so we had to give the company a name. And I'll tell you, I was sitting in my dining room uh, at the dining room table uh, in my home in Seattle, thinking about what would be a good name for a company focused on pediatric drug development. And the first name that I came up with was Kinder Farm, which is I will tell you, a terrible name. It's just <laughs> terrible. And not only is it a terrible name, but it's somebody else's terrible name because it actually belonged to another company. Um, I went through every iteration of Kinder or PD or you name it. They were all terrible. So I you know, sort of leaned back in my chair and assumed my deep thinking position and stared at the ceiling and asked myself, you know, why am I doing this? Why are we, why am I going to try and start a company focused on pediatric cancer drug development? And, and, and my thinking took me back to the very first week of my fellowship in Boston when I was trained to be a pediatric oncologist. And when I arrived in Boston, one of the very first things that they told us they were going to do as part of our orientation was teach us how to do what's called a day one talk. And I had no idea what a day one talk is. And then and, and so they told us a day one talk is the discussion that you have with a family of a child newly diagnosed with cancer, where you sit down and explain to the family the diagnosis and what the implications are and what the treatment plan is and what that treatment plan is going to look like, oftentimes, you know, months or years of therapy. And most importantly, it's where you really build that therapeutic relationship, that that bond of trust between you and the family, because you're going to have to carry that family through a lot of ups and downs. And it really is not only just day one of treatment for that patient or that family, but it's day one of life in a completely new way. It's life in the uncertainty of being a cancer patient in cancer land, you know, for, for all intents and purposes. And, you know, surrounded by, you know, patients and doctors and nurses and hospitals. And it's the thing that you're going to think about all the time. And I thought to myself, if we're going to make a company that's going to try and 
make new medicines, we're trying to make new medicines for doctors to bring to patients at that day one talk. And I also thought this is really the first day of what I hope would be a new model for making new medicines for pediatric oncology. So we called it day one biopharmaceuticals. Day one seeking to bridge the gap between pediatric and adult patients. What's the business model that allows day one to pursue these therapies for pediatric cancer patients where most biopharmaceuticals don't make that a priority? So, you know, one one thing that we stand to benefit from is that we're a small company. So, you know, the need for a return on the investment that we're making is is smaller. We don't need, you know, we don't need to make billions of dollars a year on a on a on a cancer medicine um, for us to be successful. We need to create um, you know, a pipeline full of medications that is sustainable and that will allow us to continue this work for many, many years to come. There are some indications, some diseases, um, you know, pediatric cancer diseases that do occur with enough frequency that if you have a drug that really um, makes a difference for that disease, then that can actually be a standalone indication where you can get approved for that indication and that indication alone and have a sustainable business as a result. However, those diseases are pretty rare. And so to solve the problem for diseases like Ewing sarcoma or osteosarcoma or high-risk neuroblastoma, rare cancers that might only occur in a few hundred patients per year, the only way that you can get people to invest is if you also have visibility to developing that drug for adult indications where the biology of the drug makes a difference for the pediatric cancer as well as the adult cancer. And that's really the model that we took is picking targets that are relevant to pediatric cancers where there are drugs that we can bring in and develop, but making sure that those drugs also have the potential for development in adult cancers, and then to pursue both of those lines of work with equal intensity. And if we are successful developing a drug that works for kids, we're gonna bring that drug to patients. If we're successful in developing a drug for adults as well, there are plenty of people who would be willing to partner with us to make sure that that drug gets to adult patients. And that for us is how we believe we solve the math problem here of incentivizing drug development for pediatric cancer patients. Day one's lead experimental therapy is in development for both frontline and relapsed pediatric low-grade glioma. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? So low-grade glioma is a brain tumor. In fact, it's the most common brain tumor of childhood. Glioma refers to a tumor, a brain tumor originating from a set of cells in the brain that are not the neurons, but are supporting cells called glial cells. So glioma means a tumor of the glial cells. Low-grade refers to the way that those tumors look under the microscope. They um, tend to um, uh, multiply relentlessly because these are tumor cells. Um, but at a slower rate. And low-grade gliomas manifest as slow-growing, really chronic, relentless brain tumors of childhood. They tend to occur uh, when patients are in their first decade of their life, so somewhere between age zero and, and age 10. Um, and they grow and grow and grow and grow relentlessly. Um, and then what's fascinating about these low-grade gliomas is that many of them when patients get to their early 20s, they simply stop growing for reasons that we don't fully understand. Uh, so you might think, well, that's that's pretty great, a brain tumor that you know only grows for a while and then stops. How dangerous could it be? Well, it's still a brain tumor. It's still a mass growing inside of the enclosed space that is the skull. 
and it grows relentlessly. And the treatment of that tumor um, is, you know, is required in, in, in a number of patients uh, requiring surgery or chemotherapy. Um, treatment has side effects. The growth of the tumor, the place, the, the location of the, the, the tumor within the brain can have side effects. Um, and these children are treated for a very, very long time, uh, oftentimes receiving many cycles of therapy. And as a result, they accumulate a great deal of both short and long-term toxicities. So um, this is a disease where there have been very few drugs approved. In fact, there's only been one drug recently approved for a very small subset of patients. Um, the drug that we're developing is, is for the largest uh, molecularly defined subset of low-grade glioma patients, those with a mutation in a gene called BRAF. And what's the prognosis for kids with this condition today, and how are they generally treated? So the prognosis is 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 good if you're referring to prognosis only in terms of survival. About ninety percent of uh, of patients with low-grade gliomas will survive, uh, but the morbidity, that is, the 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 accumulated toxicities of both disease and treatment for these patients, is extremely high and can include things like um, uh, profound visual loss or blindness, um, profound effects on the endocrine system and growth, um, effects on motor function and balance, um, and effects on you know, learning and, and uh, uh, executive function. The treatment of low-grade gliomas is complicated. Uh, patients all present to the hospital when they are diagnosed with a low-grade glioma with the symptoms of a growing brain tumor, headache, vomiting, uh, double vision or loss of vision, dizziness, seizures. There's a number of different ways the, the tumor manifests clinically depending on where it is in the brain. And for about 80% of patients, surgery is going to be some part of their treatment. Um, in some cases, you can remove all of the tumor. And in those cases, the vast majority of patients don't require any additional therapy but at least two-thirds of patients either can't have their tumor resected at all or can only have a portion of their tumor resected. And then the tumor, of course, does what tumors do. It keeps growing. And those patients require chemotherapy or some type of systemic therapy. And oftentimes, these patients will have one or more lines, we call them, or courses of systemic therapy. It could be chemo chemotherapy. It could be targeted therapy. It could be targeted agents uh, as part of a clinical trial. Um, in rare cases, we will use radiation. Um, it's something we don't like to do. Uh, radiation has very significant short and long-term side effects, including a risk of turning low-grade gliomas into high-grade gliomas. And radiation also has, in young children especially, very profound effects on brain development. Um, so right now, you know, we treat these children with primarily surgery and chemotherapy. But we're in this age now where we understand the biology of these tumors better and the potential for developing new targeted therapies that target the underlying gene defects that drive the tumor are within grasp. And that's what we're really focused on. You alluded to your experimental therapy. This is tovarafenib. What is tovarafenib and how does it work? So tovarafenib is a small molecule. It's an investigational therapy. So it's it's still undergoing study and has not yet been approved by the FDA, although our, our application is under review with the FDA. Um, by small molecule therapy, I mean a, a, a chemical that can be delivered in pill form or liquid form. And what tovarafenib does is it's a, it's a um, what's called a type two RAF inhibitor. It's a molecule designed to block RAF 
signaling proteins, which are uh, critical proteins for signaling growth in cells. Um, there's different types of RAFs. There's A-RAF, B-RAF, and C-RAF. And it's B-RAF that really drives the majority of low-grade gliomas. And the BRAF mutations that occur in low-grade glioma patients come in two different flavors. One's a uh, what's called a point mutation, where just one part of one one letter of the gene is changed, and the other is called a fusion, where the gene actually is broken and gloms onto to a piece of a different gene, and then um, allows for signaling to drive that cancer. Tovarafenib has the ability to block the signaling function of both the point mutated BRAF and the fusion BRAF and shut down the signaling that makes these tumors grow. Are you seeking approval with a companion diagnostic? We are. Um, you know, for targeted therapies like this, the Food and Drug Administration oftentimes does require sponsors or companies like ours to um, ensure that there is an FDA-approved diagnostic test to identify patients and make sure that that test is reliable and repeatable. So we have been very lucky to be able to partner with Foundation Medicine that makes a, a gene panel test that's widely used called Foundation One. And our partnership with them allows us to ensure that their test works in low-grade glioma tissue and can properly identify both the BRAF fusions and the BRAF point mutations. So our, our hope is to have um, the companion diagnostic approved essentially in parallel or, or shortly after um, we hopefully see tovarafenib approved. What's known about tovarafenib from the studies you've conducted to date? So overall, um, what we know about tovarafenib is that it is a well-tolerated um, and uh, active agent uh, in, in terms of its anti-tumor activity in relapsed low-grade glioma patient. We've conducted two trials at day one, uh, both one of which uh, is in the process of, of really spooling up. Um, but the main trial that we have conducted is called Firefly 1, and it's a study of tovarafenib as a single agent in patients with relapsed low-grade gliomas that have relapsed after or progressed after at least one line of therapy. Um, in this trial, we uh, enrolled 77 patients. Um, uh, these are all children uh, who had, on average, three or more prior lines of treatment. So they're coming to uh, this trial after having had their tumor grow through three prior lines of therapy. And all of these children had tumors with either a BRAF fusion or BRAF point mutation. And what we saw uh, in our study is that tovarafenib shrank tumors um, to a point of 25% or more from baseline in more than 50% of patients, that is to say 50% or more of patients, depending on the, the way that you look at these tumors, the, the different um, measurements that you, you, you employ radiographically, have tumor shrinkage of 25% or more, um, which qualifies in a, as a response under the different response assessment criteria um, used, either a set of criteria called RAPNO or a, a response assessment criteria called, called RENO-LGG. Um, we found that these responses are durable um, with um, the median duration of response um, really now uh, 14 months and, and, and growing. This is still is an ongoing trial. And the drug, as I say, is generally well, well tolerated with the side effects all being uh, to date things that we think are monitorable and reversible, the most common ones being 
Um, hair color change to raffinib can make your hair uh, turn a platinum blonde temporarily. That's reversible. Uh, skin rash and anemia are the other uh, other two most common side effects that we're seeing. Are you considering any adult indications for the drug? We are. Um, we have a number of uh, other studies ongoing, um, including a, an adult study. We actually have presented data showing that tovarafenib has anti-tumor activity in adult cancers that have the same type of BRAF fusions that we see in pediatric cancers. Um, some melanoma patients and sarcoma patients, we've seen some, some, some really interesting responses. And we have an ongoing trial of tovarafenib in combination with a second drug called Pimacertib, which we own as a MEK inhibitor, uh, looking at a variety of adult cancers that are driven by uh, gene alterations in the same family as, as BRAF. Is the expectation that you would commercialize the pediatric indications on your own? And if so, have you started to build a commercial team? Um, so yes and yes. Um, we Once we knew that tovarafenib looked like a drug that had the strong potential um, to be uh, filed with the FDA for approval, we made the decision to build a commercial team to meet the needs of pediatric patients directly. And not only have we started to build out our commercial team, we have now hired um, and fully staffed our commercial team. Um, as uh, as you may be aware, uh, uh, Daniel Tovarafenib has uh, the, our our new drug application has been accepted for review by the FDA with priority review status, and the FDA assigned a potential approval date of April 30th of this year. So to be ready to meet the needs of patients from day one, every pun intended there. Um, we've been building our commercial team internally for about two years and then recently um, hired, hired out our uh, our sales force. And I, I have to say, um, just as a personal anecdote, um, it's been immensely satisfying to see as we've been building out the commercial team, how many people want to come and help us address the needs of these patients. We, we posted 18 sales positions and we had over 1,500 people apply. It was one of the most in-demand um, uh, pharmaceutical sales jobs that we've seen recently. And I think a lot of it is because of the mission of the company and I think the potential for this drug to make a different in, difference in patients' lives. And so, you know, we're really, really proud of and excited uh, by uh, the team that we've hired that'll be interfacing directly with uh, uh, physicians and, and, and nurses and hospital pharmacists. Day One is a public company. You, in June 2023, raised $172.5 million through a public offering. How far will existing cash take you, and what's the plan for raising additional capital? So, uh, yes, we uh, we went public in 2021 and raised capital in a couple of follow-on offerings. We're very fortunate. Our, our We have a very strong balance sheet with about $400 million as of the last reporting period. Um, that cash will take us into 2026. And uh, will be used for a variety of things, including you know the commercial launch of tovarafenib, um, as well as trying to build out our pipeline and bring in new programs. We we are not um, we're not going to stop with just tovarafenib, and we're not going to stop with just low grade glioma. Um, the potential I think is there for day one to be an enduring company focused on the needs of pediatric cancer patients and patients of all ages. Um, so we will continue to grow the company, and you know depending on. Uh, our needs in the financing environment, you know, we will certainly look to um, the markets for additional capital as needed, um, but we, we're in a pretty good position right now.
Sam Blackman, co-founder and head of R&D for Day One Biopharmaceuticals. Sam, thanks so much for your time today. Daniel, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.